You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. So the text that we're going to be looking at is Mark 9, verse 2 through 7. And we're going to be looking at a famous story called the Transfiguration, where God actually showed his glory through his son, Jesus. So let's begin, starting in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There, Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So, the first thing to notice is that Mark tells us that when they ascended this mountain, Jesus was transfigured, that is, his face started to change before them. And the Bible actually records similar events in the Old Testament where God actually revealed his glory. For example, we know that in the wilderness wanderings, the nation of Israel, after they had escaped the clutches of the Egyptians, we were led by this cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And we know that when God actually gave Moses the Old Testament law, that when Moses ascended this mountain in the Sinai region, that there was a cloud that filled the mountaintop and plumes of smoke that were actually coming from the mountaintop at night because the fire uh, filled and consumed the mountain. And God actually said to Moses, he said, This mountain is a holy place where I'm giving you the law. So I want you to go through and I want you to create a border around the base of the mountain. And anybody who actually comes near this border will actually die. And we're told that the people were fearful because of it. Sometime later, we know that Moses actually came to God and said, God, I want to actually see your glory. And God said, if any man sees the face of God, they shall surely die. And so God says, what I want you to do is I want you to hide in a crevice of a mountain and I'm going to pass by and you can see me as I pass by. And God revealed himself to Moses and we're told that God's glory was so spectacular that Moses' face was actually glowing afterward. He had to wear a veil because the people would look at his face and be, and be taken aback by it. Sometime later, we know that the prophet Elijah had a similar experience with God after the prophets of Baal. He defeated the prophets of Baal and God said, I want to reveal myself to you. So he said, go up to this mountain. And God, we're told, revealed himself in this rushing wind that basically destroyed parts of the mountain. But we're told that God was not in the wind. And then subsequently, an earthquake came and shook the land. But we're told that, the, that God was not in the earthquake. And finally, we're told that, um, you know, when God whispered to Elijah in a quiet voice, that Elijah was so afraid that he actually covered his face with a cloak. So we see a number of these similar events in the Old Testament, sometimes theologians call them a theophany where God actually reveals himself in a physical way to people. But in this case, we see that actually the Lord was showing his glory through a person. 
This is astounding when you think about it. Because in all of these other cases, God was showing himself in these other ways through a cloud or a pillar of fire or through an earthquake or through the wind. But in this case, God was actually showing his glory through Jesus Christ. And what's amazing about this is that when you compare this to the case of Moses, where he descended the mountain and his face was glowing, this afterglow was sort of, in a way, a reflection of God's glory, in the same way that the moon reflects the brilliance of the sun. But in this case, we're told that actually God's glory came from Jesus. And this fits uh, what we see in Matthew 17, verse 2, that his face actually shone like the sun. I mean, that must have been an amazing thing to, to be staring at Jesus and in a moment his, his face started to shine like the sun. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but if you've ever walked out of a matinee, if you're trying to save money, and you come out of a dark movie theater that you've been in for two hours, and then you open up the doors and it's really bright outside, you know, it, the sun just pierces your eyes. You're just like, ah! You know, at least that's the way I imagine it or how I respond to it. But in the same way, the disciples, when they saw Jesus' glory, it was like them staring at a bright sun. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, we're told that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And so essentially what God was doing through this event was he was sort of pulling back the curtain and revealing a different aspect of Jesus that the disciples had not seen before. Up to this point, they had seen that Jesus was close, that he was nearby, that he was merciful, that he was relatable. But now God wanted to show a different aspect, that is his glory and power and transcendence. So really, the transfiguration revealed an important element of Jesus' character, which is his transcendence. When we talk about transcendence, this is sort of a theological term that describes an aspect about God. When we talk about transcendence, we, we're talking about something that's wholly other. And so when we say that God is transcendent, we're saying that he's out there. He's totally different from us. And we're down here. And so we need to realize that God, in addition to being very near and concerned about small details about our lives, he's also the almighty, powerful God of the universe. And that if he revealed himself in his full glory to us as broken, fallen human beings, we would surely die. Now, I think that up to this point, Jesus revealed God's imminence to his disciples. Now, imminence describes this sense of closeness, that God is near. And I think for a lot of us who maybe grew up going to church or maybe have, are used to a different religious worldview, this idea of imminence is very confusing and very foreign. I know prior to coming to Christ, 
I had gone to church all my life, but I never knew that God was actually close or that he was near and that he was actually concerned about even the smallest aspects of my life. And so I remember actually coming to Christ and discovering that God wants a personal relationship with me, and it took a lot to wrap my mind around that. But it was so exciting to think that God, the God of the universe, who is transcendent, wants to actually know me personally. Someone who's so insignificant by comparison to him. Now, I think it's important that we sort of strike the right balance uh, in our perspective of both of these characteristics. Because on the one hand, I think that it's easy to really emphasize God's transcendence and sort of lose sight of the fact that he's also very close and near. And I think it's in our context, if you have come to Christ here, or maybe you grow up in this church, you're used to hearing about this idea that God is a personal, loving, merciful God. So you sort of take it for granted that God is like my friend. When really I think most religious traditions view God as wholly other and really have no category for God's imminence. And I think if we get a little bit imbalanced on the side of emphasizing God's imminence, we can sort of relegate Jesus as somebody who sort of follows us around. You know, we're in the driver's seat, but he's kind of the, the friend who's in the passenger seat sort of fiddling with the radio. And so what we need to do is we need to see both sides of this because it gives us a robust understanding of God and who he is. We're also told that Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I mean, I remember many years ago, a couple of my roommates when I was in college decided that they were going to have a competition to see who would break down and wash their sheets first. And after a year, they decided to call it a draw. Needless to say, both of them lost in that situation. I mean, I went up there and actually looked at one of their sheets, and there was an outline of their body stained to, into the sheets that looked like the, the, the Shroud of Turin. And so what we're seeing here is that God, in a physical way, was manifesting his glory through Jesus in the transfiguration. In verse 4, we're told, And there appeared before Elijah and Moses, who were also talking with Jesus. So these two Old Testament figures show up, very prominent in Jewish tradition and understanding. Moses was very important in the eyes of first century Jewish people and many Jewish people today. The Mosaic law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai dictates much of Jewish life back then and even today. In fact, many Jewish people actually draw their sense of identity from the Old Testament law because it's, it was what made them distinct from all the other nations. So at the time that Jesus was speaking, and during his ministry, Moses took on this elevated place where he was second really to God himself. Then you have Elijah. And Elijah was very important because he was sort of 
the first among the prophets in the Old Testament, aside from Moses. In fact, there was an entire school that actually propagated as a result of Elijah. And so what was happening here is that God was sort of associating Jesus with these two prophets, Elijah and Moses, but saying that unlike them and their experiences with God, their encounters with God, Jesus actually held a higher place than them. Now, if we skip down to verse 7, and we're going to get back to verse 5 and 6, we're told that a cloud appeared and covered Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and a voice came from the cloud speaking to the disciples saying, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. So again, this cloud appears and covers them. As I mentioned earlier in the Old Testament, we read about how the, the nation of Israel would wander through the wilderness and that there was a cloud that represented God's presence. And at night, it would be a pillar of fire. Now, what would happen is that God actually would direct the nation of Israel through his presence. Whenever the clouds started moving, what would happen is the entire encampment of Israel would pack up their stuff and start following the cloud until it stopped. And whenever it stopped, that's where they would set up camp. And most importantly, what they would do is right beneath the cloud, they would set up the tabernacle, which was sort of a mobile worship tent. And as they put it right beneath the cloud, what we're told is that the glory and presence of God would actually fill the tabernacle. And so God was actually showing Peter, James, and John, look, what we're seeing here is a reenactment of what was happening in the Old Testament where I am showing my presence through Jesus. This cloud was a visible sign of God's presence on earth. In the Old Testament, it took the form of the tabernacle in the temple. But now God is saying, what's going to replace this is my son Jesus. And once I give the Holy Spirit to his people, to believers in Christ, then I am going to dwell in them and they will then become the presence of God here on earth. And this was to fulfill what God said in Exodus 29, verse 45, where he said, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and be their God. God intended to make his presence among his people. And he did that symbolically through the tabernacle as a visible sign through the cloud and pillar of fire. But now that he was ushering in the new covenant through his son Jesus, he was taking it to the next level. John picks up this imagery to describe Jesus' appearance on earth in his gospel. He says in John 1, verse 1 and 14, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God made his dwelling among us through his son Jesus. Now, interestingly, this word made his dwelling. That's actually in the Greek 
translation of the Old Testament. It's the same Greek word that the translators used for the tabernacle, skene. And so they use the noun form of that. And John is using the verbal form. And so essentially what he's saying here is that when, when Jesus arrived on the scene, it superseded the tabernacle. It superseded the temple. All of that was really symbolic of what God would ultimately do through his son Jesus. That he would make his dwelling, that he would tabernacle among men through Jesus. This is fascinating stuff. And finally, he says, listen to him. That was really the whole point of this transfiguration, this theophany, was to, to give Peter, James, and John a glimpse of God's glory, but also to give Jesus, his son, credibility. And Peter, James, and John would have also made the connection in what God was saying, that this was actually an illusion to an Old Testament prophecy. In Acts 3, verse 20 through 22, Peter was giving a, a talk to a large crowd of non-Christian people. And he says, Then the times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. Moses said, Quoting Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet for me among your own people. And he said, Listen carefully to everything that he tells you. Now, if you look at Jewish literature, most look at this enigmatic figure, the prophet that's, that Moses refers to in the Torah, the, five, the first five books of the Old Testament, as a messianic figure. And so what the apostles were saying here is that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. Not to mention, uh, when you think about it, they must have made the connection to the transfiguration that this is exactly what God the Father was saying to them as they were up there in the mountain. So what does it mean? How do, what does the transfiguration teach us? What are we supposed to walk away from this with? I think, first of all, listen to Jesus. Listen to God's Son. You think about Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3. We're told that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of God's nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I can't think of a more clear statement about Jesus' identity in the entire New Testament, describing Jesus' deity, that he is the exact representation of God's nature. Now, this is interesting because actually the author of Hebrews is using a term that was common in the first century for metallurgy. 
And what he is using is a word that describes the die cast model. You know, ancient coins, they didn't produce coins the way that we do today. They, they had to hand make their coins. So what they would do is they would carve out a cast and then they would have a punch which would have the image on the other side. And then they would cast a disc of either gold or silver and they would place it between the cast and the punch and then they would hammer it and it would come out with this image. And so in the same way, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that in the same way uh, that Jesus showed up in human form, he is the exact representation of the Father. I remember when I was younger, I got this toy. And now it's actually a collector's item. It was the Star Wars uh, special edition Han Solo carbonite chamber. And it was this awesome toy where you would put Han Solo inside the chamber and you would twist it and then he would be gone and he would be in this cast. And um, it's kind of the same thing where basically the author of Hebrews is saying that God the Father and God the Son mirror one another. They're the exact representation of one another. By the way, I made incalculable number of friends because of this toy. I think people thought it was really cool. Anyway, secondly, Jesus occupies a higher status than Moses. I think that's another implication that we should actually gather from this. You know, since Jesus superseded Moses, his new covenant also supersedes the old covenant by implication. Think about Galatians 3 verse 10. Those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. Um, you know, I was thinking about how a lot of times when you think about religion, there's a set of rules and regulations that you need to follow in order to experience some sort of paradise or to get good things in the afterlife. And what God says is that the Old Testament law that he gave us was never meant to bring us salvation. It was never meant to be a pathway to earn his acceptance. Instead, God actually gave us the law to show us our imperfections. And that's why Paul says that those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under God's curse. That, you know, even if you break the law at one point, you're guilty of breaking it all. Because the law represents God's perfect moral character. And all of us fall short of that. Really, the law acts as a mirror to sort of show us our moral imperfections. You know, imagine you're, you're driving in your car and you're stopped at a red light and then you flip down the visor with the mirror and you look in the mirror and you see that there is a big piece of cilantro I mean, a huge piece. It looks like, you know, you bit into a bunch and, and part of it got stuck in between your teeth. But to your horror, you realize that you ate lunch several hours ago and had been interacting with tons of people and smiling the whole time, and you, you know, yet you had that piece of cilantro stuck in your teeth. Now, you've got a problem, but there's nothing that the mirror can do to help you out, right? 
It's, it's simply there to show and reflect back to you the problem that you have. And in the same way, the law was never meant to be a solution to our problems, less still a solution to our problem of being alienated from God. It was merely there to show us God's perfect moral standard and his character and to show us how far, far short we fall of that. Think about Romans 3, verse 20, where Paul says, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. There it is, clear as day. But also, God provided for us a way to be right with him without keeping the law. You see, following the law, trying to be a good person, trying to outweigh the bad things we've done by doing good things. That's all a failed project. That's not going to help you get right with God. God himself needed to provide a solution, and he did through his son Jesus. In the following verses after Romans 3.20, in verses 21 and 22, Paul says, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. And so, there it is, in plain English. You're not made right with God by following the law and trying to be as strict as you possibly can. Instead, you're made right with God by placing your faith in Jesus. And that's true for everyone. It's available to anyone who's willing to humble themselves and receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. You see, Jesus came as a perfect man, bearing the weight of the entire law and fulfilled it perfectly so that we don't have to fulfill it perfectly. And also, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. When you look at the Old Testament, it is filled with hundreds of prophecies about God's coming one, the manner of his coming, where he would be born, when he would be born, and also detailing his life and mission and eventual death. One of the things that we see, in the, especially in the law, is what's called typology. And I already sort of alluded to typology earlier when we talked about how Jesus became the literal tabernacle of God by, by coming in human form and making God's presence known among people. But there are other Old Testament typologies as well. One of the things that's super fascinating, and, I, and I've continued to gather more and more details that convinces me that this is actually about Jesus, is this annual celebration of the Passover. And this actually was to commemorate the nation of Israel escaping Israel's clutches because God saved them. And what God specified on the night of their departure from Egypt is, I want you to go in, I want you to take an unblemished lamb, I want you to slaughter it, eat it, but I want you to take some of the blood and I want you to put it on the doorposts to indicate that an innocent life had been taken in this home. You know, a couple thousand, nearly uh, uh, over a thousand years later, John the Baptist arrives on the scene and he says, uh, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And Paul the Apostle refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb. And so Jesus fulfilled that Passover typology. He was the innocent lamb that was slaughtered, and by his blood, his innocent blood being shed, God passes over us in judgment. Also, we see that there are direct prophecies, particularly in the major prophets. And God gives us these prophecies because he understands that there, we're going to have a lot of questions. We have a lot of doubts. There's a lot of skepticism. You know, some of you right now are sitting here and you're skeptical of Christianity. But God understood that and pre-authenticated the coming of his son Jesus by giving us these amazing prophecies that were predicted hundreds of years before Jesus even entered on the scene. I remember years ago, a professor of mine who was a professor at The Ohio State University in Near Eastern Language and Culture came and actually lectured at our home church, which it was, it was amazing. So this guy, he actually has a, Jew, he's a Jewish background Christian. And what he was describing was how when he was in grad school at Harvard, he would actually try to share his faith. But obviously, many of the people that he was working with, his colleagues, many of them were either Muslim or Jewish. So he wouldn't really get a great hearing with them anytime he would try to talk to them about spiritual things. So he decided that he was going to take a three by five card and he wrote down a passage of scripture on there. And it read, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open up his mouth. Now he would hand this out to his friends, and be like, hey, why don't, why don't you just read this? And he recounted how he asked one of his buddies, who was also a grad student, to read this card. And this guy was pretty devout Jewish. And he got into the first line. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was cu crushed for our iniquities. And he put down the card. He said, let me just stop you right there. And the professor who was lecturing at our home church said to him, he's like, well, why, why did you stop right there? He's like, listen, he's like, I, I don't want to talk about Jesus. I know that you're a Christian, but you need to respect the fact that I'm still uh, a devout Jewish person, and I, I really don't want to talk about Jesus. And my professor said, well, where do you think this comes from? He's like, well, clearly from the New Testament. He said, actually, you just read Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 7. And, you know, what's interesting is that many years passed, and apparently this guy calls him up out of the blue. And he says, you know, remember that one time on campus where you stopped me and you had me read that 3 by 5 card containing Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 7? He's like, that incident haunted me for many, many years. And I just wanted to call you and let you know that I actually have become a Christian. Now, 
some of you are pretty sharp and are thinking to yourself, well, how do we know that the disciples weren't savvy enough to just insert this passage into the Old Testament and sort of make it seem like Jesus actually fulfilled this messianic prophecy. Well, in 1947, a few Bedouin boys were throwing rocks into, the, into caves near the Dead Sea. And as they threw a rock in a cave up on the mountainside, they heard what sounded like pottery smashing. And so they climbed up there and found this amazing cachet of scrolls dating back to the first century and in some cases hundreds of years before Jesus arrived uh, on, on the scene. One of the, the, the most priceless pieces that they actually found was a complete Isaiah scroll, all 66 chapters um, of Isaiah. And it's called the Great Isaiah Scroll. They actually carbon dated this four different times and give, gave us a calibrated range from 335 B.C. to 107 B.C. Now, what's interesting is as you scan the scroll, Isaiah 53 is in this area right here. Actually, this thumbprint right there contains Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So it's impossible to claim that the apostles actually came in and inserted this later because we have evidence to suggest that this predates them at least by several hundred years. So going back to our account, um, we want to look at Peter and James and John's reaction. In a parallel account in Luke 9, verse 32, we're told Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and two men standing with them. So apparently this was probably happening in the evening, and they were starting to fall asleep when Jesus then started to transfigure and they saw this bright light emanating from Jesus and his face. In verse 5, we're told, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter was so excited about this experience, he said, let's just stay here and bask in your glory forever. And what we'll do is we'll set up these little mobile shelters so that we can be up here and we can honor you. Mark adds this note. He didn't know what to say because they were so frightened. Um, you know, when you experience acute stimulus response, there's actually three responses if you're extremely extroverted. It's fight, flight, and talk. And so Peter, he just didn't know what to do. He was so frightened, he just started talking. And so... I guess, you know, the last thing we really want to talk about is what do we do with powerful experiences that are a part of following God? How do we manage those in light of everything else that we read about in the Bible? I think, first of all, powerful experiences are part of following God, but they ine inevitably start to fade. I remember the first year that I started following God, 
I would have these powerful experiences, these encounters with God that in some cases would bring me to tears of joy. And, you know, I would remember that I would have these really, really high highs, but then I would have these really low lows as well where doubts would plague me. And there were times where I would vacillate as to whether or not I even wanted to follow God. And so one of the things you'll see, especially if you're a new Christian, is that God will give you powerful experiences. But over time, God starts to withdraw those feelings from you, not because something is wrong, not because you're losing your walk, but because he wants you to actually grow in maturity. He doesn't want you to be accustomed to or dependent upon these feelings to fuel your walk with him. You know, mature believers eventually learn to rely on God's truth rather than their feelings. They realize that the call of discipleship to follow Christ in some cases requires suffering. It always requires self-sacrifice. In fact, we know that when, when Jesus showed up here on earth that he was characterized as a man of sorrow and well acquainted with griefs. And so mature believers understand that even though the Christian life is a happy life, it's one filled with joy, that it's also one filled with intense suffering and acute suffering at times for the sake of Christ. You know, some Christians center their entire walk to try to find ways to get back that spiritual high. So they jump from one church to another seeking worship services that are going to try to bring back that high that they felt initially. And so it's this endless cycle of trying to chase that when in reality God is trying to push us toward maturity and to realize that we should walk by faith, not by sight or feeling. So what is the role of powerful experiences? I think, first of all, it's to encourage us. God will often bring powerful experiences in times of discouragement or to, to bolster our faith when we're struggling. In other cases, it strengthens us for future trials. God may be anticipating that we are going to face intense suffering. And to prepare us for that, he gives us a powerful experience so that we can look back on that and draw times of comfort and encouragement as we face those trials for Christ. Peter had to do this eventually in his life. At the end of his life, he knew he was going to face execution and death. And in 2 Peter 1, verse 16 through 18, he, he casts his mind back to this event. He says, For we did not follow, follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we are with him on the holy mountain. This event 30 years later was what allowed Peter to continue and to finish his walk with God strong. So let's draw a couple of conclusions here. Let's see if we can try to bring everything together. I think, first of all, we need to balance 
a view of God where we not only preserve his transcendence, but also his imminence. And any sort of imbalance will either cause God to seem very distant in our mind or one where we don't respect him as he truly is, which is our Lord and God. Secondly, Jesus fulfills and supersedes the Old Testament. And so it's a real tragedy to see Christians falling back under the law mentality where they try to earn God's approval by doing good things when Jesus actually fulfilled it. And finally, enjoy these mountaintop experiences, but don't depend on them. It's a trap that inevitably is going to cause you to feel disappointed with God when in reality he never intended for these powerful experiences to continue to fuel your walk with him. Why don't we end with a quick prayer here. Father, we thank you that you give us powerful experiences. We thank you that you revealed yourself in glory through Jesus. And I pray that we can come out of this and listen carefully to what he has to say in the Gospels and through the writings of his disciples. We thank you that you revealed yourself through Jesus in these physical ways. But more importantly, we thank you that you revealed yourself through your written word so that we can go back to that over and over again and be able to draw strength from what you have to say, which is eternal. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.